carry on with our study here in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll be looking at verse 10. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who persecute, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You all know, I think, that I'm a night owl. Grace reminded me of that. She told me I looked terrible today. I looked very tired. Or was it Alyssa? Somebody pointed it out. Uh, my night owl tendencies were never on worse display than when Georgia was away last week. She's usually my conscience who tells me enough is enough and go to bed. Uh, and I recognize that being a night owl overall is a, a, a vice and not a virtue. But it's not my fault that all my favorite reruns come on after midnight. I, I kind of think that there's like a grand conspiracy between MeTV and PBS to... <laughs> keep me up, but um, I've probably mentioned this before too, but one of the charming things about late night TV is the ads. Tells you a lot about who's watching, I guess, I don't know. You get a lot of these as seen on TV type items that appear, and um, it is amazing what kind of silly problems these inventors are solving, you know, things like kitchen cabinet storage and the need for indestructible flashlights that also act as strobe lights and who knows what, and then face creams and you know, exercise belts that are electric and, you know, glow-in-the-dark building blocks, whatever, all kinds of things. Um, And you can generally tell how useless these products are by how many times they have to sweeten the deal throughout the ad. And, uh, you know, the, the, the famous line, but wait, there's more, they keep saying, you know. And it's a telltale sign that the original product doesn't really stand on its own because they're already assuming you're not really that impressed. And, uh, for me, the icing on the cake, my, my favorite ads, uh, it, it's when right at the end they double the offer, right? Right at the end of the ad. But wait, call right now and we'll double the offer. And sometimes they even add a little countdown clock up in the corner, you know, because you might miss out if you don't call in the next 10 minutes, right? Um, and, and I thought of that in terms of what Jesus has said so far in this sermon. His, his opening lines of the sermon here, these beatitudes, these blessings, are, are so memorable and so pithy, and they are some of Jesus' most famous words. These are statements, these statements he's making about what a truly blessed man looks like, and some of these blessings have been beautiful, they're very comforting, they're also very demanding, we've been learning, uh, and we observe that in some ways this has been increasingly so as we've been going along, because uh, no one really likes the idea of being poor in spirit. Nobody likes mourning uh, or being meek, or you know. And, and most of us don't have a hunger for righteousness. Mercy is a challenge for us to give and receive, we said. None of us are pure. Uh, none of us has the power to make peace. Uh, so it's getting harder and harder, and on the face of it, none of these blessings have felt that exciting when you think about it, other than the promises that are associated with them. But Jesus has been setting up this picture of the, the truly blessed, truly happy man, and he keeps adding to the deal with, you know, a, but wait, there's more kind of tone, right? Let me tell you even more about the truly blessed man, and things just keep getting worse. And... Um, Today, as we're starting to get to the concluding uh, thoughts of these blessings and beatitudes, these verses kind of come as a pair, verses 10 and 11. I didn't read both of them. Most commentators treat them together, but Jesus separates them, and I wanted to kind of explore why. So we're only going to look at verse 10 today, 
But these final two blessings are perhaps the most incongruous because they don't even feel like blessings at all. Uh, Jesus begins wrapping up these beatitudes by telling us that the truly happy man, the truly blessed man, is persecuted. And next week he'll double the offer. But how are we to understand this idea that persecuted people are blessed, happy people? Doesn't seem to make a whole heck of a lot of sense. It's not much of a sales pitch. So much for health and wealth gospel, right? Here's a bunch of impossible tasks, but wait, there's more. And if you do it really well, you have persecution to look forward to. Like, this is great. Uh, Brian Regan, my my favorite stand-up comedian, does this routine on the invention of the iron, the electric clothes iron, and he's presenting it like a product idea, like an infomercial, while sarcastically emphasizing all of the things about it that make this pl- appliance like horrifyingly dangerous. He says, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to heat to the temperature of lava, and we're going to place it on the flimsiest surface on the entire house, you know, on this table that wobbles, and uh, then we're going to make it really heavy with a sharp point at the tip, and... And then he says, but wait, there's more. I'm going to put a long cord on it so that kids get involved now, too, you know. And, you know, and that feels like Jesus' sermon has kind of that feel to it. This is his idea of icing on the cake. These beatitudes just get harder and harder. But we've already learned that being truly blessed entails doing hard things, right? But now we learn that it's kind of like thankless work. Uh, we're not going to earn the blessings of our neighbors by being truly godly, blessed happy people. In fact, Jesus promises that we're going to suffer for it. That's a fine how do you do, especially coming off of the last week, right? Last week's message, we've said that all these beatitudes are intertwined. And what we looked at last week was that we're supposed to be peacemakers, right? And now Jesus seems to be promising that that won't end well. You know, go and try and make peace and you'll likely get punched for it. And we already kind of know that. We've seen that in personal life, probably. We see it in international relations all the time. But it seems like Jesus should be offering something a little more promising at this point, you know. should encourage us to set our hopes higher. Uh, I remember some years ago in Philly being at a playground with the kids. And, and, you know, some kids are good at making instant friends. Uh, Evie's always been good at that. But in this case, uh, Jacob got to playing with some boys at the playground. And at one point, I saw from a distance that one boy was threatening to hit the other boy, and um, I saw Jacob trying to intervene. And uh, he was going to be the peacemaker, you know, sticking up for the little guy, and my immediate instinct was to go and stop him. Uh, I kind of regret that in some ways, but I I felt like I could already see what's going to happen here. Jacob's going to get in the middle, he's going to end up getting hurt, and both of these kids could end up attacking Jacob just because he's in the middle, and my suspicion is that the other parents are going to end up getting involved in making the whole situation worse, because after all, these are the same guys that raised these brats that are fighting, right? So... I, I, I ended up intervening, and I told Jacob, look, I don't know how to explain this to you. It's not your fight. And I kind of regret stopping his heroic impulses, but my fear was that the peacemaker is going to end up being persecuted. Uh, peacemakers often end up getting hurt. Jesus calls them sons of God, but many others call them a son of a something else. And so peacemaking can lead to persecution, and Jesus seems to be implying that the same might be true of all the other wonderful virtues we've been exploring so far. The, the poor in spirit, the meek, the pure in heart, even the mourning, all of them could very well end up being persecuted on top of it all. And, and this is also a shift from the previous blessings because it entails something passive, meaning it's not a blessing that comes from something we do at all, but rather something that is done to us. To get this blessing means I need someone else to persecute me. 
And again, it's like peacemaking in the sense it's not a solo effort. There's no blessing for self-persecution. You can't really do that. We're not ascetic monks. There's no prize for self-flagellation. So what does he mean by persecution? I think we have to ask that because people kind of interpret that word broadly, right? If we say that somebody has a persecution complex, we don't usually mean that in a kind way. We, we mean it's the opposite of actual persecution, people who feel like everyone's out to get them. And again, Jesus doesn't bless those who beat themselves up with self-pity or navel-gazing. He blesses those who are legitimately persecuted. And in this case, I think he means the hardcore stuff. Uh, the word that gets translated as persecute is a, a form of the Greek word dioko, um, which has several meanings, and it's not always negative. Uh, it can mean to put something in rapid motion, or to pursue, or to follow, or to acquire something, or to press forward in the face of adversity, and those can all be good things. I mean, we, we see that. We use it in that kind of a way. I mean, Earl is pursuing Mary Ellen, right? Successfully so far, right? This is, this is very good. Jason is pursuing Ivy. That's wonderful. I pursued Georgia, and I got away with it. You know, in, in fact... You actually see forms of this word used in other passages. The same root appears being used as pursuing Christ. But in this form, in this context especially, it's completely negative. Because if you think of those same definitions that I just gave, but add into it malicious intent, it totally changes the flavor. To, get, to set someone running, right? To follow their footprints, to pursue with intent to acquire, to press on and persevere without ceasing. You can see how if, if you're talking about your walk with Christ, that all sounds very wholesome, but when you think in terms of, of bad intentions, those same phrases start to sound kind of creepy. You know, I once saw a meme about the importance of using appropriate fonts because they, they, they showed how, like, you know, the same phrase, your mind, written in, like, flowery, you know, script looks really nice, but if you write it in, like, dripping red letters or something like that, it looks rather like a threat, doesn't it? Or think of another thing. You all know, I don't know how many Sting fans are out there. How many of you know the, the, the band The Police, right? Uh, they sing Every Breath You Take. And I always thought growing up that that's a fairly sweet song and everything until you listen carefully enough that you realize he's singing from the perspective of a stalker. And, uh, you know, every breath you take, every move you make, every step you take, every smile you fake, I'll be watching you. <laughs> See what I mean? It's creepy. Or think of uh, another popular song at Christmas time. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. Like, you know, that would be... Super creepy if you're singing about somebody other than Santa Claus or God or maybe your spouse, right? Context matters. If Hannibal Lecter says he's having an old friend for dinner, it has a very different sense of, like, you know, what I would mean by the phrase. My point is that the word persecute, as it appears here, has the sense of being hunted, relentlessly pursued, tracked, Followed with nowhere to hide, you could translate this as blessed are the prey or happy are the hunted. Grace and I are still slowly working our way through the Chernobyl series, uh, and one of the creepiest things that happens among many creepy things that are happening is the people investigating this accident discover that they're being followed by the KGB, and on top of a nuclear disaster, you have Big Brother watching you. You know, you can't even go to the bathroom without them knowing it. 
That's what true persecution looks like. That's what Jesus means here. This is a description of a predator tracking its next meal. Now, considered in that way, in what conceivable sense is such a person blessed, let alone happy? Once again, Jesus is really stretching credulity here. The the definition of blessing seems awfully flexible. Uh, By Jesus' accounting, this blessing is this, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the persecuted. Now, if that promise sounds familiar, it's because it's identical to what he said back in verse 3. So perhaps in some sense, what we could say is the persecuted share a certain bond with the poor in spirit. I suppose that stands to reason, because being persecuted might make anyone feel poor in spirit. Uh, But there's a sense in which being persecuted is is a, a characteristic of kingdom citizenship. To be a citizen of God's kingdom involves persecution. Ergo, persecution is a sign of blessing. The persecuted share the same blessing as the poor in spirit and as children. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. But we also have to consider that persecution alone doesn't mean all that much because I've been leaving an important qualifier out in our discussion so far. You may have noticed the middle part of the verse. This blessing applies only if you're being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That's important. Uh, Because if being hunted was a virtue in and of itself, the solution would be simple. We could all just go out and commit a crime and get yourself on a most wanted list and then just enjoy the blessings, watch them flow, right? Uh, Jesus obviously doesn't mean that. This doesn't apply to people who are persecuted because they deserve it. Jesus is not glorifying a victim mentality. This blessing doesn't apply to those who think they're being persecuted or feel persecuted. Neither does it apply to those who are being hunted for unrighteous behavior. You're not a victim of persecution if you get punished for wrongdoing. You're not a victim of persecution just because you suffer. Suffering is universal. We've talked about that before, and sometimes suffering is even deserved. In other words, if you're being a jerk and you get smacked for it, that's not persecution. That's Jesus using an unbeliever to straighten you out, the same way he used Babylon to rebuke Israel time and again. So there's a downside to this beatitude, because I think sometimes it gets misinterpreted, misconstrued, misapplied by believers, because you think, if I'm not being persecuted, my faith must not be authentic, and therefore I become more combative and try to start fights so that I get into that kind of cycle and feel like I'm being persecuted and therefore I'm blessed. I think it's fairly obvious that's not what Jesus is getting at. His goal is not for us to be as contentious as possible. I don't think that's his vision for his people, for his church. I think we've all probably known Christians who see persecution under every rock. And they don't even realize that half the time, you know, like, they're like, oh, everyone's out to get me. It's like, I kind of want to hit you too, and I don't know how to say that. But that creates a dilemma in many minds, and I think it's especially so because we're in America, and the American church is not being literally hunted in the same way, and so we feel like, well, we don't know how to apply this to us. And, And there are some legitimate questions of persecution in America. I think it takes a softer form, but it's out there, and we see it oftentimes in the culture wars, things over sexual ethics, and uh, we'll talk more about that next week. I think that that is legitimate, and that needs to be discussed, but we're not hunted. What we're facing is a softer form of persecution. Um, But in the same way, you know, if American Christians sometimes look for persecution, I think we do it because 
Scripture speaks so much about it, and I think we feel an obligation to go find it. And if we poke the bear and we wait for the bear to punch back, then, you know, we'll be persecuted. And, of course, that's a very silly thing because, again, persecution is not itself a virtue. But I think it's also important to point out for those of us in the American church that we don't have to look very far to find the church being legitimately hunted. More than a third of the world's population lives in countries where Christianity is either forbidden, severely restricted, or where the local populace is so hostile that actually living out your faith is dangerous. If, if you go to the website, Voice of the Martyrs, and you look at the map and they highlight all the countries, you know, like I spend enough time on World Old, Denise, like, and it's like, it's a very good chance that when the country comes up in the shape, you know, that it's one of these countries and on the Voice of the Martyrs map, a huge swath of the map is highlighted. China, you know, China has many official churches, if you were to go there, but each one has a painting of Mao behind the altar, you know, and the government has agents sitting in the pews enforcing communist orthodoxy, and the only approved Bibles are the ones that are edited and printed by the government. And most of the real church is underground. <laughs> India, they haven't straight up outlawed the church, but they often harass it, and the more militant Hindus in the country are violently opposed to the church, and there are regular attacks against Christians in various regions, and the government recently threatened to kick out Mother Teresa's ministry in Calcutta. And... Even otherwise friendly countries can make Christianity feel unwelcome. One of the weird things is that when you look at the Voice of the Martyrs map of these you know, countries that are dangerous for Christians, there's a lot of overlap between them and American allies in some regions. Even Israel, for instance, is highlighted as a hostile nation. Now, they don't ban Christianity there per se, but they are highly resistant to missions work. Uh, they want to preserve their Jewish identity, and they see the church and evangelism as a problem there. They don't mind the big cathedrals all over the country because they're empty and they're really just religious museums. That's okay with them. It's good for tourism and, and sales. And they're not evangelistic. They're not even trying to be. But Israel will not typically allow new evangelical churches to be built at all. They'll use zoning restrictions, lawsuits, harassment, whatever they can. Missionaries can go there, you can live there, but only if you're ethnically Jewish, and basically you have to conceal your reason for going. And that only scratches the surface. The world is not friendly to the kingdom of God. There are two kingdoms at war in this world, and it's partly why I, I struggle to be a post-millennial. I, I've known a lot of post-mill people on the right and the left, and I, I just don't see where Jesus promised that this tension between the kingdoms would go away and I think in many ways, we're fortunate to be in America. We don't face hard persecution, like I said, but many of our Christian brothers and sisters face daily dangers for their faith. And it's not just that they're hunted down for their faith. Christians in every age have had the reputation as well for going where the danger is and getting hurt as collateral damage. Many pay with their lives just by going somewhere where they're not specifically a target, but where they're in the way. I've been thinking a lot about Ukraine, and I am very glad that Pam and many others have escaped, but, you know, I'm also really glad that many others have stayed. Uh, John Eide is a member of our presbytery and a, a longtime missionary in Ukraine, and, and I made Excelsior, my Excelsior class, listen to a webinar that he produced. He was interviewing 
some, some pastors in Ukraine that are still there, and I thought, well, let's watch that. It's easier than lesson planning. Um, but he's in the States right now, John is, but he's in regular touch with this network of, of fellow Reformed missionaries and pastors over in Ukraine, and many have stayed there out of conviction because a lot of their older congregants can't leave. They're stuck, and someone needs to feed them. And someone needs to stay up and keep watch at night and tell them which way the attacks are coming in from and tell them which side of the house to sleep on because they don't have basements and they have nowhere to go. So that's what's going on there. Uh, he, he told of a pastor in Kiev who's writing his sermons, hoping that the church is still standing when he goes to preach in the morning. These are Christians who are there preaching the gospel, sheltering refugees, feeding the newly homeless, and teaching suffering people to look to Christ for their hope. And Ukraine is not a Christian nation, but many Christians are going to die in Ukraine for the gospel. Not because Russia came there to kill them specifically, but because they intentionally have put themselves in harm's way for the sake of the kingdom. Now, This is also not unique in the church's history. If you go back to ancient Rome, the church earned a reputation because they stayed in Rome when plagues would sweep through the city. People with money would get out of there uh, if they could, and they would go out to the country, but Christians would stay, and they would minister to the suffering, and they would bury the dead. And many of them also fell ill and died. And if you go further back in history, go to the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish church. That's the original church, right? And it was thriving. And Jesus' brother James was the pastor. And if you remember when we read in Acts 11, the first large-scale missions collection was for the Jerusalem church. And they hosted the first church council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. But what happened to the Jerusalem church? It's gone. It was destroyed by the same Roman legions that came to destroy the Jewish uprising. And the heart of Jewish Christendom was eliminated because they didn't flee when the legions came. So the church throughout history has put itself in harm's way, and they have done it because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because their citizenship is from above. They have done it for the sake of righteousness and with joy. See, this verse is partially a description. It's not so much a formula and a how-to. It's saying that those who belong to the kingdom, they will be hunted for their righteousness, and Jesus says those people are blessed. And when you think about it that way, what a blessing this is, that he blesses those who are willing to be hunted for the sake of the kingdom. He puts them in company with the poor in spirit and with children. They're among his favorite (laughs) kinds of people. Peacemakers are blessed, but so are the hunted, the ones who face the battles. This should be a comfort to our brothers and sisters who are facing the sword. So much of the church throughout the world faces daily threats, and I'm willing to bet that many of them sometimes wonder, at least, if it's worth it. I'm sure there are Ukrainian believers who are wondering what they're doing there, and the Jerusalem church may have asked the same question when the Roman siege began. But Jesus answers those questions here in the affirmative. Was it worth it? Jesus says, yes, those people are blessed. Now that still leaves an open question of how to apply this verse. Because yes, we live in America. The First Amendment protects us legally and we're not supposed to pick fights. But I think one obvious thing we can do is pray for the persecuted church. We can remember what our brothers and sisters are facing, not only in Ukraine but around the world. 
And we can ask God to help them feel as blessed as Jesus says they are. We can ask that he would grant them strength to endure when everything feels pointless. You know, it's one of the hard sayings of Jesus. He, he not only didn't promise peace, peace on earth, he, he promised precisely the opposite. Uh, he says in Matthew 10, just a little while after this sermon, uh, that, you know, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come to bring, not, not, not to bring peace, but a sword. And later he promises there will be wars and rumors of wars and nations rising up against nations. And in times like these, what can we say but amen to that? And Jesus promises no security in this world. There's no hope in horses or chariots. Our only hope is in a kingdom that we can't see. And in that sense, we should also pray that God would strengthen our resolve, because in Matthew 10, Jesus talks about when you are persecuted, not if. So we may feel safe, but our safety is not guaranteed, because our security is not in the U.S. military. And there's no guarantee that we will not one day face the same kind of oppression that others are facing in other countries. We don't have to go looking for trouble. It may very well come to find us. So we can pray for the persecuted church. And we can also pray that we too would have the same strength to face real persecution when it comes. That's a perfectly sound way of applying this verse. But there's another sense in which we're all being persecuted. All of us. And we got a little taste of it in the gospel reading earlier. Every believer is being hunted. I wanted to read what the Apostle Peter says in his first epistle. You don't have to turn there, it's okay. First Peter 5, verses 8 to 11. He tells these believers, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says that the devil is on the prowl. The devil is hunting you. And Peter knows of what he speaks. You remember when Jesus told him straight up, he said, hey, Peter, Satan's been asking for you. He wants to make mincemeat out of you, but I wouldn't let him. I prayed for you. You see, there's something going on behind the scenes, and Peter is telling his people that this bonds them with their fellow believers around the world. Not the physical persecution, it's the prowling of the devil. Suffering for the sake of righteousness, it's a major theme in that letter. And, and I, I know it, there's a risk of maybe it sounds like I'm over-spiritualizing this thing, but it's not my fault. Peter did it first. He is saying that spiritual warfare, being hunted by the enemy, is one of the things that should remind us that we're not alone in this fight. He's telling us to take courage in the fact that believers all over the world are also being hunted by invisible forces. And that's not the only place that we find this theme. If you look in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the same kind of thing. In the passage on the whole armor of God, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You are already in a war zone. That's what scripture says. We are being hunted. Your enemy is lurking about looking for a way to trap you. And that means persecution is already at your doorstep. So you don't need to go looking for persecution to get this blessing. If you are a Christian, faithfully pursuing Christ, you are being hunted, not by the government necessarily, but by the same enemy who tempted Eve and brought our entire race into the destructive cycle that we see. You have an enemy who wants to kill your soul. How many of you ever consider that each and every time you're tempted to sin, you're being persecuted by the enemy? He's hunting you. See, unbelievers, when they sin, they're they're sinning because they're doing what comes naturally to them. They're in a state of rebellion against God. They were born that way. But if you belong to Christ, the enemy is intentionally trying to undermine you. He is trying to get you to do what now is unnatural to you. To do something that is not part of your identity anymore. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to you, and you belong to the kingdom. You have nothing to do with sin, but the enemy wants to entice you to commit treason against your king. He wants you to aid and abet the opposition by forgetting who you are in Christ. It's actually encouraging you into a form of suicide. He is hunting you. He's looking for weakness, always looking for an opening. And that threat is not any less real because you're not in Ukraine or some other war zone. If you belong to the kingdom, you will be persecuted. You will be hunted. That's baked into the cake. And the danger for you and I is just as real as what they're facing in Kiev. The biggest danger anyone will face is not physical death. They will, that's going to come for all of us eventually anyway. The biggest danger is spiritual death. And this is why the church often grows under political persecution. We saw that in Acts. We see it today. But it withers under spiritual persecution. Because if the church is not on its guard, it can be crushed. The scriptures say this again and again. But wait, there's more. There's always good news. Amen. We have an enemy. Yes. But you're not just a helpless slab of meat either. Jesus knows this enemy. Jesus already defeated this enemy. In other words, the prowling lion is already muzzled. And he can't touch any of you if Jesus stands in his way. Jesus is the most blessed and happy man who ever lived, and he was certainly persecuted. We saw that with his temptation that we read earlier. So he was spiritually persecuted, and the enemy hunted him down ultimately all the way to Calvary and put him in the grave, but he didn't stay there, did he? He got up. And now the same Jesus who said he prayed for Peter's protection, he's at the Father's right hand praying the same thing for you. And the enemy is still hunting for Jesus. He can't get him in the heavenly throne room. It's a little too well guarded. So he goes after him the only place he can. He comes after him where he can be found here, meaning in his church. But even if it kills us, persecution does not need to overcome us. I thought this is an interesting tidbit. C.S. Lewis said in a sermon that he preached during World War II, 
And I think you could replace war with persecution and it would work just as well. He says, there's no question of death or life for any of us. Only a question of this, that, death, or that. Of a machine gun bullet now or a cancer 40 years later. What does war do to death? It certainly doesn't make it more frequent. 100% of us die and the percentage can't be increased. It puts several deaths earlier, but I hardly suppose that that is what we fear. Certainly when the moment comes, it'll make little difference how many years we have behind us. Does it increase our chances of a painful death? I doubt it. As far as I can find out, what we call natural death is usually preceded by suffering, and a battlefield is one of the very few places where one has a reasonable prospect of dying with no pain at all. Does it decrease our chances of dying at peace with God? I cannot believe it. If active service doesn't persuade a man to prepare for death, what conceivable concatenation of circumstances would? Yet war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. The only reason why the cancer at 60 or the paralysis at 75 do not bother us is that we forget them. War makes death real to us. And that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to be always aware of our mortality. And I am inclined to think they were right. C.S. Lewis is so good. Persecution reminds us of death, but it should also remind us of where we're going and why. And that can't be all bad. Persecution shouldn't surprise us. We're not better than our master. If he was hunted, we will be too. But we are not unaware of Satan's devices. So trust Christ. Let him defend you. Let him intercede for you. And you will be acting like a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. And you will be blessed. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are surrounded by news of war and rumors of war. Peace seems a foreign idea, Lord, and yet somehow we sometimes think of persecution as being something that happens over there, where we have a very canny enemy who is on the prowl. And Lord, I know there's a danger of us either taking him too seriously, but there's also a danger of ignoring him, and I think that's probably more likely our temptation. Lord, help us to recognize that danger. To know that we are being hunted. And Lord, help us to trust you and to throw ourselves on your mercy. We pray that you would protect us, Lord, that you would shield us, that you would continue muzzling the lion. Pray for us, Lord, that he may not sift us like wheat. Protect your church, Lord, not only here. Protect your church in Ukraine, Lord. Protect your church everywhere around the world. That the gospel would go forward and that you would be glorified and your name lifted up. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.